Today's text is from Luke 11.1 1, and also, it's also Matthew 6, 9-13. So please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Luke 11.1. 1. one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And also Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Today I'd like to talk about uh, the Lord's Prayer, but the thing is, is that um, I have always hesitated teaching on this prayer. Um, I don't think I've honestly ever explicitly taught uh, this prayer before. I think I had our church go through it a few years ago, several years ago, but I was on sabbatical and I wasn't here then. Um, and the reason why I, I honestly hesitate, and I wouldn't say I don't like this text because I love this text, but I hesitate to teach on this text is because it's too familiar. It's way too familiar. I even heard people reciting it when Jerry was reading the prayer. I heard a couple people like, oh, we're doing the, oh, we're not, we're not, this is a reading. Oh, we're going to uh, respond. Like, it's so familiar that when we start to say it, it's automatic that we say it too. It's so familiar. And the path is so well-worn on this prayer that it, honestly, it, it was hard to find wonder in this prayer. And here's the thing. That's kind of my problem. That's not your problem. That's my problem. That's, that's how I come to it. And if you think the Lord's Prayer is boring or too familiar, maybe it's your problem too. Last year, my daughter started preschool, and she went to preschool uh, in the middle of the forest. Um, I remember when we were exploring the idea of her going to school, and to this school in particular, we thought, I mean, how magical would it be and how enchanting would it be to go to school in a city, but in a forest? Um, the school is located in Glen Canyon. Everyone, any, anyone ever hiked or walked through Glen Canyon Park? Anyone? No? Like three people. Five. You should check it out. Uh, here's a picture of Glen Canyon Park Aerial View. Um, it's right in the middle of the, in the city, of this part of the city. What was at first a wonderful idea, I mean, school in the middle of the forest, became actually kind of difficult because you, every single day that we t I took Junior to school, I had to drag a three-year-old through the forest to get to school. <laughs> like, think about that. There are a billion and one things to distract a three-year-old on the way to school when you're going through the forest. There are bugs and dogs and birds and flowers and other hikers and branches and trees and dirt and leaves and poop and everything. <laughs> everything you could think of distracts a three-year-old. And I would have to come up with a new game every day to keep her walking to get to school. And the school was like 450 yards or so into the canyon. So we had a little hike. We we're like, come on, let's go. And I would have to every single day. And sometimes I would just give up on the game. I'm like, I'll bribe you. You will get candy. You will get all iPads, like whatever you want. Just let's get to school. I have a place to be. So I, my goal was to get her into the door. And as soon as I got her there, I turned around and grabbed my phone, checked it on the way out, trying to get to the first meeting uh, of the morning. <clears throat> and if you ask me then, how was it taking her to school in the forest every day? And that must be fun. And I would say, yeah, it's fine. It's whatever. But one day, after I dropped her off at school, I decided I would keep going. The school was only, like I said, a few hundred yards into the canyon. But 
the canyon's over like a mile long and mile wide. <clears throat> so I went deeper into the canyon and I turned it into a little hike. And that turned into wonder. That turned into taking, me taking pictures and me losing track of time and all the wonderful things that can happen when you're surprised. I was in the middle of this canyon going, this is insane. And I, by the way, I, I had never hiked the canyon before that time. I'd just taken Junie to school every single time and dropped her off. And this was, I was like taking pictures going, Ash, have you ever been in here? This is insane. She's like, yeah, like a hundred times. And Junie walks, hikes that canyon all the time. I'm like, this is crazy. Why hasn't anyone told me? Like, Dave, we said it was in the middle of the canyon. Like you're supposed to. And I, as I walked out, I realized that if simple things in life feel boring or routine, it was probably has more to do with me and not taking the time to slow down and discover, taking the time to be curious and keep going. It had nothing to do with the thing. It had everything to do with me. Now, I speak for myself here, but most of my life can become quite utilitarian. Get in, get out, efficiently, quickly, to get home, to do more things on my to-do list. Check another thing off my list. And of course, I say this because today, as we begin the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer can become like that to all of us. It's a prayer to pray when we don't know what to pray, but we want to say that we prayed. So we'll pray this prayer. And it can lose its wonder. It can lose its beauty, its power to transform us and turn us into a people who pray with all of our lives. That was the intention, that you and I become people who pray with all of our lives. Now, you can say this prayer. You can say it. Luke says, Jesus says, say this prayer. Literally, say it. But Matthew says, pray like this. So you can say this prayer. It could be in your liturgical arsenal. And it's a wonderful thing, like we're memorizing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. You can keep going and memorize that. And it's so beautiful to recite, to recite the Lord's prayer. It's like if your mind completely goes at the end of your life, you want to remember these prayers. You want them so deep in your psyche as to memorize them. But remember, this prayer should teach us to pray. Not just like we want to learn this prayer to say it. It has to, it should teach us to pray. And in Luke's gospel, the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you teach us to pray as you pray. And this prayer was Jesus' way of teaching them to pray. So Matthew says this. Jesus says, pray like this. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, pray like this. Think about that phrase. Pray like this. A few weeks ago, my, uh, Junie and I were downstairs and our, our, we have a little workshop in the basement of our house. And Junie gets on my workbench and um, says, in effect, Daddy, teach me to hammer a nail. She wants to learn how to hammer. So I say, okay, when you hammer a nail, do it like this. You hold the nail in one hand, you hold the hammer in the other hand, you tap it in to set it and get your hand kind of out of the way as you drive the nail in. And so we practiced with golf tees and styrofoam first, and then we moved to a little craft hammer, and then eventually... I was teaching her, hammer like this, meaning these are the basics. This will get you going, and you can build on this knowledge, and eventually you can frame a house. You can take this and build on it. This past summer, I read uh, the book Lust for Life, the acclaimed uh, Irving Stone book on Vincent Van Gogh, which is historical fiction, but he claims all of it is actually um, historical truth. It was written in 1934. And Vincent Van Gogh, you might know this, Vincent Van Gogh was a pastor before he was a painter. He was a pastor. 
in the coal mines um, in somewhere, I forget where. And, um, and he gave up pastoring. He was just, it was a whole different story, but he was like, it completely wrecked him, unhealthy, was not good, um, a bunch of like enmeshing with his congregation. It wasn't a really good thing. So after he leaves a life of pastoring, he decides to give his life to painting. And when the first thing he does, he knows to do when he decides, I'm gonna give my life to painting, is that he had to find a teacher to teach him to paint. And he would take the train into the city and walk for days to find someone who teaches him, who can teach him the basics of painting, how to mix colors, how to paint subjects, etc. The Lord's Prayer is for those who want to learn the art of praying. How do I pray? Jesus says, pray like this. And we learn from the master Jesus. Now, there are other ways to pray. There's like there's other ways to hammer a nail. There's other ways to paint. There are other ways to pray. And there are different teachers to teach you to pray. But no other teacher can teach you to pray with such intimacy and depth as Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a reflection of Jesus' very own prayer life. And he teaches us and allows us to take up Take this, allow this prayer to take up residence in our own lives, sending down roots and weaving invasive vines throughout the fabric of our daily existence. Now, we're gonna go slow through this prayer because I think this prayer should teach us to pray. So these next few sermons will feel like teachings. But the hope, the goal, and all of this, the desire I have for you as a church is that you would learn to pray, for that is Jesus' original hope with this prayer. Teach us to pray. Now, as you learn this prayer, I wanna deal with just this first sentence, this first verse. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's all we're gonna do today. And right off the bat, at the very beginning of this prayer, we're struck with another sticking point, the word Father. Why in the world is God referred to as Father? Is this the patriarchy? Or is this appealing to some sentimentality, like for those who had really good fathers, like, oh, God is the heavenly father. You had a good father? Well, God's the heavenly one. Is this what, what's going on here? Now, some will read the patriarchy into this passage, and that's, that's totally understood. Now, I don't think, and we can have a conversation with this afterwards, and I'm sure somebody will come up to me and talk to me after this, afterwards, but I don't think it's right to read the patriarchy into this simply because this first it's not helpful to understand the deeper meaning of what Jesus is trying to say here, and we'll get to that in a second. But secondly, both Jesus and ancient Israel inhabited a world full of powerful female deities. Patriarchy alone never deterred either the rise of female gods or the use of female imagery in God's description, meaning there were options for gods to be female, even the Holy Spirit is talked about in the scriptures in feminine terms. Meaning, meaning, there is a very specific reason for Jesus to use this language of father here, and it's not because of cultural baggage. Others will be deterred or triggered, maybe, by your own father wounds when I say heavenly father, because your dad has been less than stellar as a dad. Now, it's interesting Whenever Jesus, in the book of Matthew, speaks of fathers, earthly fathers, it's never, not one time to my knowledge, in a good light, ever. And this is super strange. 
You have the, for example, you have disciples that leave their father to follow Jesus. They literally drop their nets and leave their fathers there in the fishing business, like, I'm out, dad, and they leave and they follow Jesus. One follower, one would-be follower says, I want to follow Jesus, but I have to go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. That is not, that's not, can you imagine if someone said that to you? That's, you're like, whoa, that's harsh, man. I just need to go bury my dad. I can't do a funeral. Like, you know, he's dead. Like, you follow me. Jesus said, here in the Sermon on the Mount, if you fathers being evil, he uses the word in the Greek, evil. You fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more does a heavenly father know how to give good gifts to his children? I'm offended by that kind of. Like, evil? Like, I'm, I mean, I've done maybe a couple evil things, but I, mostly good things. Like, whenever Jesus refers to fathers in Matthew's gospel, it's never in a good light. Now, why, why is this like this? Why does, why does Matthew do this? Why does Jesus do this in Matthew's gospel? It seems that Jesus isn't trying to drum up sentimental images of your dad here to point them out, point out your heavenly father in heaven. Like, it's not like, remember your dad and how he loved you. And, like, oh, and look at your father. He, he's not doing that. He's actually doing the actually opposite. He's saying all of your dads, good or bad, for better or worse, are bound to this earth. And because of that, they don't see everything. They don't know everything. And therefore, they are bound to make crucial mistakes in your life. They might even give you good gifts, and the good gifts will backfire because they don't know the future. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, heaven and earth are in tension. There's this push and pull tension. Heaven is trying to come to earth and earth is trying to push out heaven. And ultimately, they will kill Jesus who's bringing heaven to earth. So there's this tension, earth and heaven. There are earthly fathers, but there's a heavenly father. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying that all of our dads are from earth, but there is a heavenly father whose realm of loving, powerful rule a household of grace, mercy, salvation, forgiveness, and unending, unconditional love and cosmic power is breaking into this world and calling sons and daughters back home. This is what Matthew is teaching in his gospel, which is why Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. Now, what Jesus is doing here, well, it's interesting to know what Jesus isn't doing, okay? You might have heard this before, but this is not true. Jesus isn't introducing, to a, uh, introducing us to a different God than the Old Testament God. He's not saying, Old Testament God wasn't father. The Old Testament God was judge and ruler and smiter of all things. But I'm telling you, God is a father. He's not revealing to us a different God. This is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. Jesus isn't even teaching people to pray in, in ways that were different than Jewish people prayed or referred to God. Some people go, well, they never called God Father in the Old Testament. Actually, they did. All throughout the Old Testament, they called God Father. They, they saw God as Father. God was referred to as Father way before Jesus even said this. Actually, in the time of Jesus, there was a very, very popular prayer called the Kaddush as a Jewish prayer, and it maps almost directly over this prayer. They prayed something like this prayer a lot. So this isn't new. Jesus isn't like revolutionary, like our father, oh my gosh, how, what do you, like the, people knew that God was referred to as father. What makes Jesus' teaching on teaching us to pray our father so unique? What's so unique about Jesus saying, him saying, I want you to pray like this, our father in heaven. What makes that so unique? And the answer is this, the newness of this prayer 
is rooted in the uniqueness of Jesus' relationship with God. I want you to understand this point. This point is so, so important. Write that down if you take notes or whatever. This is really, really important. Now, there, there's a very common phrase, we're all sons and daughters of God. And, you know, to, to a certain extent, yes, that's true. There are other <clears throat> sons of God that I talked about last week that are even uh, supernatural beings. So God is a father of everything. So in a sense, yes, we're all sons and daughters of God. But Jesus comes to us not as a son of God, but the son of God. This is different. Not only the son of God, but the only begotten son of God. Now, not only does John in his prologue of his gospel, his mystical gospel, say this, but Jesus himself says this. And here's the uniqueness of what Jesus is doing. Matthew eleven twenty seven. it's on the screen. It says this. This is what this means, that Jesus has a unique relationship with God. He's the only son. Jesus says this. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, every single one of us knows the second half of that scripture, right? Nobody knew it was connected to the first part at all. You're like, wait, why? Those two things, did you just read two different books of the Bible? They're literally one after the other. Same breath that Jesus is doing this. He's saying, I have such a unique relationship with the Father that you can actually come to me and get rest. Now, how does this work? What does this mean? It takes the first part to explain the second part. The reason that we can come to Jesus and find rest is because Jesus has revealed to us God, who God is, and has brought us into this eternal relationship. Jesus is the only one who can or does ever do this. Yes, this does make make Jesus' claim exclusive. We are weary in looking for God everywhere. We're looking for God through the gods, through sex, through work, through all kinds of supernatural, spiritual, crystal things, and other ways that we just work ourselves to death. We are, try- we are looking for God. We are weary for love, for satisfaction, for reality, and the Son has revealed it. Why? Because he has it. He has this relationship with ultimate reality, real satisfaction, and true love. It's like this. Jesus, what Jesus is doing, he's, he wants to bring us into the very thing he loves the most. Or one, that's what he's doing. Okay, here's a broken example, but hopefully this, this can be his point. When I lived, I used to live in uh, Carpinteria, which is right by Santa Barbara. And when I lived there, my friend Britt, who is the founder of the kind of reality churches, taught me to surf. Why? Because he loved to surf. He grew up surfing. Some of his earliest memories were on the beach 
in the water. And so when he taught me to surf, it was not, it was, it was, he loved to do it. He would pick me up. He would call me early in the morning for like dawn patrol or whatever. And we would go out and we'd look at the ocean. I was just there a couple weeks ago. We wake up on a Saturday morning. He goes, Lomas, let's go look at the ocean. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's go look at the ocean. So he just goes and he looks at the ocean. He brings me with him. Why? Because he loves this. We love to bring people into the things that we love. Angelica, who's, who leads worship here, just got into golf. I saw something on Instagram like, oh my gosh, why have I just discovered this game of golf? And I'm like, what? And I was like, I, let's do, I all think, I want to bring it. What do you need? I, you need any, I'm just like, I want anything I can do to help you to bring you into this thing that I love. This is what we do. We love bringing people into the things that we love. When Jesus says, practice our father, he is bringing us into the thing that he most intimately knows and most loves over everything in the entire world, the father. He's like, I want to bring you into this thing. I want to bring all of you into this love I have with the father. See, go back to this verse real quick in Matthew. Jesus says that no one, no human knows the son, not fully. No one fully knows the son, only the, except for the father. The father is the one who knows the son. And no one fully knows the father, not completely, except the son. And, Jesus says, whoever the son reveals the father to, that's the, those are the only people that could, could know. Now, what's, what's, what does that mean? What's unique about Jesus is that he reveals, and not just reveals, but brings us into the divine, eternal love relationship that God has had forever and ever and ever. God is a, um, theology calls this uh, the Trinity. And what, okay, let me just read this to you because this might kind of blow your mind. Here's my favorite verse um, in the New Testament, probably my single favorite verse. Matthew 17, verses 20 through 21. Jesus says this. Jesus is praying for us, for us in this room. He's praying for, this is a trip. He prays for his, his, himself. He prays for his disciples. Then he eventually prays for everyone who will come to know about him through the disciples, which is, which is crazy. 2,000 years later, a room full of people in San Francisco. That's us. Jesus is praying for us. And that's what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Reality San Francisco. And that all of them may be one. We'll be united. Father, he's praying to God the Father. He says this, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is a reference back to Matthew. No one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. We know each other and we're so, we know each other so much that it's like we're one. It's like we're united. Would they, your church, be united as we are united. And then this last sentence, which blows my mind. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought into this eternal, divine, beautiful, salvific, redeeming, holistic, pure love. May they be brought into this this is my prayer for them. I want them to experience what you and I have. This is what he prays. Jesus prays that we would be brought into the mystical union with God. Okay, now that is a mystical, you might be going, ooh, yeah. What in the heck does that mean? 
that what does that even mean? Like, well, how do I know? How do I feel this? How do, do I levitate? What's going, what happens when this happens? It means this. The way that Jesus experienced the Father is the way we too can experience the Father. And that's simple, right? The way Jesus experienced the Father is the way that we can experience the Father. And you well, how's that? Frank Lake, a psychiatrist and theologian, in his book, Clinical Theology, studies the person of Christ as reflected in the four Gospels in order to develop a model to delineate what he terms the dynamic cycle of being arising out of a healthy interpersonal relationship. Meaning, we are only persons as we are healthy persons in deep interpersonal relationships. You are not an individual, you are a person. A person can only be a person in relationship to other persons. A healthy person can only be a healthy person in relationship to other persons. Does that make sense? That's identity stuff. I know that's kind of, maybe that's not this sermon, but it kind of is. Now, the deeper and the more satisfying your interpersonal relationships, the more emotionally healthy you live and you can become. Thus, Jesus was who he was due to deep interpersonal relationship with the Father. This is what Frank Lake says. So in his book, he describes four dynamic elements of the father-son relationship that establish and sustain Christ's personhood, his identity, in the face of opposition, in the face of, of, of tremendous suffering, in the face of everything he was called to do on this earth. How in the world did Jesus do all this deep interpersonal relationship with the father? And here are the four elements of them. Here they are. Four dynamic elements in Jesus' relationship with God. Acceptance, sustenance, status, and achievement. These four things. You can write them down or take a picture of me with them in the background. <laughs> now keep these slides up for a second. He's saying, first, the, the reason Jesus has such a personhood, like a, such a, a stable sense of a buoyancy, a flu, an identity that was, that was sure, that can move up and down through the fluidity of life, is through acceptance. He knew that he was the son of God. This is Jesus at his baptism. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. That marked his life. Before Jesus did anything, he was marked by, this is who you are. You are my son. I love you unconditionally. You are accepted by me. Jesus does nothing to earn it. And he has instant access to the Father in prayer. By the way, this is the, most, the thing I pray for you the most. I pray for you the most in my own time with God is that when you pray, you would have instant access to God. That you would sense a, a, the, like the, the presence of God immediately when you pray. Now, sometimes God answers my prayer and sometimes he doesn't. So hopefully it's working for you. The second thing is sustenance. The love of the Father and the Father being pleased, pleased with him gives Jesus sustenance on all levels. Meaning, just knowing, Jesus walked around knowing that the Father is pleased with him. That he's pleased, meaning that the Father's enjoyment of him gives him a sense of well-being. Like, my Father enjoys me. And it gives him a sense of sustenance, like, uh, Jesus says, I have, I have bread that, uh, I have food that you, that you do not know of. Like, what? Jesus, are you hungry? No, I have food you don't know of. He's like, do you, you packing snacks, bro? What are you doing? <laughs> the food is the sustenance that he gets from the Father, like deep sustenance from God. The third thing is status. Because of who Jesus is, now this, these kind of move outward, and these are important. Jesus is sent out into the world to work at making the Father known. This is his status. He, his status is, I bring the kingdom of God to bear on the world. He brings the, he, his identity, he gets his identity of, I'm the one who reveals the Father. 
This is my identity. This is my status before people. This is why I'm on this earth. And lastly, achievement. He gets his like, sense of achievement in doing the Father's will. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That's how I, that's how I measure success in my life. Did God call me to do it? I'm doing it. This is achievement. So this, this right here, his relationship with the Father, these things, acceptance, sustenance, status, and achievement are what mark Jesus' life and his interpersonal relationship with the Father. Now, back to the beginning. What makes this prayer unique? Our Father is that Jesus is inviting us in to learn to pray to God in this way, to share with Jesus what it means that God is your heavenly Father, that the Father accepts you in Christ, that he is your sustenance, that he, is, he gives you your status and he is your achievement. This is what Jesus says, I've, I've, I'm, I wanna, I've come on earth to bring you into this thing. Now you might be saying, well, yeah, that's cool, but I already get that from my job. I get all those four things from my job. I get a sense of acceptance from my job and my career, sustenance and what I do, status and achieve. All this comes from my job. And I think that's the problem. This last week on Friday night, we had a lecture here. I don't know if you were here with uh, Carolyn Chin. She wrote a book called Work, Pray, Code. I highly recommend it to you. She's a professor of sociology at Berkeley. And she came here to lecture on this Friday night. And she says that work is becoming for us uh, um, sacred, where we're getting everything that we would normally get from a faith, we are now getting it from our work. And because of that, it's destroying us and destroying society because it's basically moving us to a caste system where you can do that if you have a great job and get paid a ton of money and all of the perks that come with it. But if you are a bus driver or a janitor or somewhere else working, you don't have that at all. So we're creating this caste system all over again because of this, where in faith, everyone is welcome no matter what. But because of this, we're this Silicon Valley is like the hub of this. We're creating this. We're creating like, I find meaning. I want a job that gives me meaning. Well, your meaning actually comes from God. No, 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 I need to find it for my job. I need like the Bible studies to be at my work because that's, I, that's my whole life's at work. So I'm gonna, my, I want my Bible study at work too. Like everything is happening in your job now. And doesn't happen where like you have to sacrifice to go to church to get it or do it or set apart a day like Sunday to go. So you're like, well, I get this from my job. And like, that's kind of the problem. And it's ruining, she argues that it's actually ruining society. Like there's no interconnectedness to the people on the street. It's just where do you work? And do you work in this segment or in this place? And then, of course, when you lose your job or your job lays you off or you're like, I'm leaving this job. I'm finding another job. That leads to a host of other things. Which brings us to this final phrase, and I will, I will start to close here. <laughs> Hallowed be your name. Jesus says, I'm gonna bring you into this relationship I have with the Father. I want you to pray our Father. He doesn't say pray my Father. That's his own thing. Our Father, all of us. Our Father. And then it's how, this is the first petition in the prayer. Hallowed be your name. By the way, this is a petition which means it's, it's up to God to answer this prayer, by the way. Keep that in mind. 
How do we, or how does God's name get hallowed? By the way, what does hallowed mean? Anyway, hallowed is basically holy, sanctified, set apart. Set apart your name. Now, how in the world does that happen? Well, sometimes it helps to point out the opposite. What is that thing that when you bring up the fact that you're a Christian at work or in your apartment building or neighborhood, people look at you like you're an immoral monster? What's that thing? For all sorts of reasons, some part, partly of the, accus, of the accuser, Satan, but a, a lot of part of the church's failure, mostly the church's own failure, their own sinfulness, God's name is not holy. It's not holy in San Francisco. You say the name God, you say the name Jesus, Yahweh, and it's like, ah, you're, you believe, I know what you believe, and you're, like a, you're, you're, you're evil. And this could be whether it's the rise and fall of this church or the part three documentary of the fall of that church or the fall of a global evangelist apologist, whatever it is, the fear of God coming into our own church. I mean, this, this, all this stuff scares me to death. It scares me to death because like, I, we sometimes don't realize like, we as Christians carry the name of God into the world. So we have to pray, God, make your name holy. Make your name, it has something to do with us, but mainly this is God's prayer to answer, make your name holy. Now, how does this happen? Okay, I promise I'm landing this plan. When I say this, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, turn to Ezekiel 36, real quick. You might be going, oh my gosh, really? Ezekiel 36, this is not the end of the sermon, this is like the beginning. I promise it's the end. Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel Old Testament, major prophet, kind of in the middle of the Bible-ish. Okay, look at verse uh, 22. Ezekiel was a prophet sent by God. God says this to Ezekiel, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show you the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes." Ultimately, when we pray this prayer, we are asking God to do what only God can do. We, the church, have done this as well. We have profaned the name of God. We have profaned the name of God in in the way that we talk about God, in the way that we live our lives, and all sorts of other sort of heinous things that we do. The grasping of power, the intermingling of politics in the church, all of that stuff we have done And because of this, because of this, the name of God is profane. That means it's it's looked at as a curse. And we, when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking God, make your name holy. What does that look like? Next verse, 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water 
and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all of your uncleanness. The most profound declaration of the Father's holiness is his gracious redemption of humanity. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we're praying is, God, would you make your name holy in San Francisco by redeeming people? Redeem people. Wake up your church, God. Cleanse us from our filthy conscience. Give us a new heart. Put your spirit in us. Teach us to follow the way of Jesus. Make your name holy. Bless the churches in San Francisco. Save people. Call them out from darkness into your marvelous light. This is what we're praying. Make your name holy. And so we're saying, do it, God. Do that. We, we play a part in that. We'll learn this in, in the coming weeks. We play a part in that. But this is God's prayer to answer. This is, we participate in it, like with every prayer. We become the instrument, the answer to God's, to these prayers in some way. But we have to, we, we can't do it with willpower. We can't do it with like, well, we're going to do it ourselves. We have to, we like, God, would you do it, Lord? Would you please bring the redemption? Make your name great again, God. Make it great. This is what we're praying. Yes. So to end, <laughs> to really end, <laughs> I want to introduce you to a daily prayer rhythm that we're going to launch tomorrow. In our um, newsletter, there'll be uh, a way you can da- download an app. We're partnering with 24-7 Prayer. And this daily prayer rhythm is something that the ancient church did together. Um, it's a 17-year-old, 1,700-year-old practice all over the world. So this is launches next to we- tomorrow for our church. Also, Bridgetown in Portland is doing it. A couple of the churches. And then it globally launches in October. And churches all over the world will keep this daily prayer rhythm, where in the morning, we pray through the Lord's Prayer. In the afternoon, we pray in, the, in noonday, sometime in noonday, we pray uh, for people who are far from God, or as the New Testament language calls them, lost. When someone's lost, it's not your, sometimes it's not your fault. Like, you're lost. You need to be found. We pray for the lost. We pray, make your name holy. Redeem us. And specifically, redeem these four people. One person. Whatever. Name people by name and pray for them. And in the evening, it's a prayer, a short prayer of examine, where we look through our day and like, oh, Lord, where were you? How was I aware of your presence? How was I not? Now, you can download this app that walks you through these three prayers. We'll also have, like, create a PDF that you can just download it on your phone. It's super simple. It's a way that we're going to be doing, like, praying morning, noon, and night. Now, for some of you, it might be good to gather to do these things morning and night. Like, it might be a Zoom call or meet up for lunch. And, like, we're going to pray this thing at lunch every Tuesday. Or we're going to do this in the morning. Every, like, be creative. Find people to, to do this with, these daily prayer rhythms. And the, and, and the first one is to pray the Lord's Prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray? <laughs>